uh, 6, and today we're going to talk about grief. A little bit longer, there's more to cover, it's a little bit more personal, and uh, so bear with me. We'll be in Ruth chapter 1. So if you want to go to the Old Testament and you get through the first five books, Joshua judges Ruth, and you'll want to uh, turn there. We're going to read it uh, as we go through, and uh, hopefully both you and I will be able to get through the sermon. Okay, so let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word And we need it. We need to be reminded of how the gospel ministers to us in our deepest need. We need to know the sufficiency of your word for all the problems of our lives. We need to know that the gospel turns our grief into hope. We thank you that regardless of what topic, what trouble, what emotion is dominating our life at this point in time, we can look to the cross and we can look to Christ for the love, mercy, grace, and peace our souls long for. So bring us to the cross. Bring us to Christ. Bring us to the communion of the saints. Soften our hard hearts and have mercy upon us. And so we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. As many of you uh, know, My father died in March of 2017, and that was a hard time, as you can imagine, a hard time for me. My father was, after Joanne, my biggest fan, and when he died, I posted pictures on Facebook from each decade of his life. His last few years were marked by dementia, and I didn't want to remember him that way, so By doing something of an overview of his life, I thought it would help to remember some of the better moments that I had spent with him. And I was going to read part of the eulogy that I did uh, for him, but I couldn't get through it without crying. So, And I couldn't get through it without crying when I gave it. But recently, uh, just about a month ago, I was in Florida talking with my mom, who misses him fiercely every day. And she told me something I had never heard her say before. She said, your father always encouraged me to spread my wings and fly. And so I did. And I got to do some amazing things that women of my generation didn't get to do. And when I fell, he was always there to pick me up. And that's true. My mom was a music teacher, runs in the family, And I remember one year, mom was denied tenure because she wouldn't give the school superintendent's daughter the lead in the school play. And she came home in tears. My dad's response, he told her to get back in the car. And they went out, and we didn't know where they went. It was just my sister and I at home trying to figure out what's going on. And they came home with a new car. Because my dad wanted her to know that he had complete confidence in her. They would have uh, celebrated their 66th anniversary this Wednesday. This wasn't supposed to get this hard this quick. Needless to say, I love my dad a lot. And I miss his smile. I miss his constant encouragement. Maybe a little exaggeration. I miss him welcoming us home and waving us goodbye. Now, a friend of mine, also a teaching elder in the PCA, also lost his father in March of 2017. And he didn't have the same kind of memories of his father that I had of mine. His father was in poor health for many years, and at least five times he was called to come home quickly, this is it. Except it wasn't. And it's quite expensive flying to the Southwest, and these frequent trips became a financial burden. So when his dad finally did pass away, he he sort of felt it's about time. And while he went to the funeral, and while he would tell you that he loved his father, when it was all said and done, he just went through the motions. When it was all over, he just went back to work. And he didn't really grieve, 
and he didn't think he had to, and he didn't really want to. Now, I think most counselors today would tell you that when it's time to grieve, you will. And if you try to bury it, ignore it, forget it, stuff it way down deep inside, it will leak out in other ways. For some people, it leaks out in anger. For some people, it leaks out in doubt. For my friend, it leaked out in alcohol. And this had happened to him with some other losses, and it ended up hurting him very badly. Two dads, two sons, two deaths, and in March of 2017, two very different types of grief. My friend picked himself up, dusted himself off, and moved on, and some people thought he was strong. I cried my eyes out. I took some time off. I barely got through the funeral and broke down at the burial. And some people thought I was weak. And I'm here to tell you today that I think some people get those categories wrong. And the scriptures get them right. The Bible actually has a great deal to say about grief. The go-to passage for that is usually John 11, when Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus. And I have preached that passage. Uh, You can go back and look it up. It was more of a how to grieve sermon than this one's going to be. However, today we're going to look elsewhere. We're going to go back to a passage that we've actually visited twice before. So turn with me in your Bibles again to the book of Ruth. Ruth is about a third of the way into the Old Testament, right after Judges, right before 1 and 2 Samuel. And the book opens with unexpected deaths and different types of grief. So let's start with Ruth 1 at verse 1. And we're going to learn that grief comes from the loss of people. Grief comes from the loss of people. That should be the first blank there in your outline. In the days when the judges ruled... There was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. And the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Epaphrodites from Bethlehem and Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So we open with a very difficult scene. The opening chapter of Ruth and Naomi's story signals how bleak and hopeless their situation was. From the opening verse, we see nothing but difficulty. And the difficulty is the result of inconsistent spiritual leadership from the judges who ruled Israel. Verse 1 tells us this took place when the judges ruled. And it was a time of spiritual failure. And it brought divine judgment on them in the form of famine. God was using these difficult uh, days, these bleak days, to turn God's, his, his people's hearts back to himself. And the difficulty that Israel experienced generally was mirrored in Elimelech's family particularly. Their departure from the promised land into a land of exile is actually a sign of their spiritual condition. Like the rest of the country, they were doing what was right in their own eyes, as we see in the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so we're not surprised when their departure from God's land brings about tragic, unexpected deaths as Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion all die in rapid succession, leaving no heirs and no support for their wives. 
We don't know the cause of death, but we know the result. Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah were on their own in a culture that gave every privilege to men. And you may be able to relate at some level to this. We live in an age that's not much different from the time of the judges. First, like Naomi and Ruth, we live in dark days and troubled times. We live among people who do what's right in their own eyes. Second, the decisions of other people unavoidably affect you, sometimes unfavorably. Like Naomi, we live with the choices made by a parent, spouse, child, sibling, friend, employer, or politician, or criminal. Third, you may feel alone, anxious, or alienated, helpless because of the death of a loved one or a broken relationship. Maybe you feel pounded by pain, either physical or emotional or both. You may wonder, what went wrong? Or where is God? Nowhere does scripture promise relief, much less immunity from the trouble of grief and sorrow. And in Ruth, suffering just keeps sneaking up on Naomi, tragedy on tragedy. Naomi's really lost her life, her way of living. She has no husband. Her sons are gone. No one to protect her. She doesn't just lose all the men in her family. In that culture, she's lost her reason for living. She said, everything is taken away from her. The loss of a spouse at any age is one of the most painful sorrows anyone can suffer. And some of you know that firsthand. The grieving process can take years and the effects last a lifetime. And so Naomi enters in to a period of deep grief, knowing that life will never be the same, and wondering if there's any hope in the midst of all this hopelessness. She has lost her people. Second, grief comes from the loss of place. We'll start at verse 9 and then jump to the end. Grief comes from the loss of place. It says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal, deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Jumping down to verse 15, uh, Orpah goes, Ruth stays, and uh, Naomi says to Ruth, she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So now in verse 6, here's Naomi with these two women. These are Moabite women. Moabite women who are outside of the covenant. They are not believers. They are not Jews. They worship different gods, foreign gods, heathen gods. They're idolaters. And they hear the Lord has come to the aid of his people. The Lord has returned blessing to Bethlehem. And so Naomi sets off to go back home. And perhaps from her perspective, she's begun to realize after 10 years that she wasn't in the place where she ought to have been. And Bethlehem was the place she belonged. And so she sets off on this journey. And they come to a crossroads. I and mean, maybe there's a signpost, you know, with a sign that points to Bethlehem in one direction and another sign that points to Moab in the other direction. I don't know, I'm making that up. It sounds good. But she says to her daughters-in-law, go back. Go back to your people. Go back to your place. And Orpah takes her advice and goes home, back to Moab, back to her place, back to her people, back to where she might have a future. But Ruth does not. 
Verse 14 tells us that Ruth clung to her. And then she makes a remarkable commitment. It's a commitment, I think, more radical even than marriage. Verses 16 and 17, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Listen to this. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. In other words, Ruth is making a promise to never return home, not even if Naomi dies. She said, I will never go back to my place. From this day forward, I will live in your place. Now, you know you got hearts of stone if you don't get moved uh, by this scene. You know, if this was a movie, uh, the director would now be panning in on the eyes of Naomi. There'd be tears welling up. It'd be very emotional. John Williams' music would be playing in the background. It'd all be stirring. It's a very emotional point in the story. And just imagine it. Place yourself there. You form strong relationships with your daughters-in-law when your sons die. They're the only bond that Naomi has left. And you ask yourself, why does she tell them to go back? Why does she do that? And you have to understand the setting and, and the scene. What future did these two Moabite women have in Bethlehem? What future did they have in Judah? For all intents and purposes, they're heathens. Would they ever find a Hebrew husband to marry them in Bethlehem? Probably not. Whatever future they had lay back in Moab, which was their place and their people. And Naomi knows, and what she knows will prove true, that she can't go back to Moab. It was never her place to begin with. Truth be told, it's hard to go back to Bethlehem. Because even though it was once her place, it's really not anymore. She left it a long time ago. As the recently deceased, profane but brilliant writer Thomas Wolfe once wrote, you can't go home again. Why not? Because once you've been away for a while, home has changed. And it is not the place you remember. It's not the place you once knew. Furthermore, when Naomi does return, no one remembers her. She's changed. She's older. She's bitter. Her name means pleasant, but now she's bitter. And it's obvious to the women of Bethlehem. And so they asked, verse 19, the women said, is this Naomi? You know, they barely recognize her. She has lost her people. And she has lost her place. And third, grief comes from the loss of future. From the loss of future. Verse 10 to 14, back to that middle section. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me. For your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Now, all of this is tragic. Naomi is exiled in a foreign land. She is alone. Her aloneness is not a problem merely from an emotional standpoint, but also from an economic one. Without a husband or sons or grandsons, she faced destitution. She's too old to work, too old to remarry, too old to have any more sons, and they gave away all their land. They sold off their land. She has no land. And without her husband, sons, or land, widows like Naomi are vulnerable economically. They're open to abuse and neglect without the provision and protection of a husband or a son in a very male-dominated society. And as Naomi looks at her future, it's no wonder she felt bitter. She had no future. And so she grieves. Well, actually, she does have a future, but she doesn't know it yet. You have to go all the way to Ruth chapter 4 to see it. We're not going to get there today. 
But rest assured, the book that begins with a funeral ends with a wedding and a baby, and it points us forward all the way to Jesus, the son of God, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Ruth. But when they announced this baby in Ruth 4, verse 17, they said, a son has been born to Naomi. You know, that's the gospel storyline, by the way. Out of weakness comes real strength. Out of repentance and admitting you're weak comes real power. After, out, of, out of giving away and serving others comes real strength. Out of generosity and giving your money away comes real wealth. Out of famine comes fullness. Out of a funeral comes a wedding. Out of grieving comes hope. Out of the cross comes the resurrection. That's the storyline of the gospel. In 1 Thessalonians 4, the Apostle Paul says to the Christians there, grieve, but don't grieve as those without hope. Paul's saying there's two opposite mistakes you can make in the face of tragedy, death, suffering, and grief. On the one hand, you can try to avoid uh, grief. You can try to avoid weeping. You can try to put it out of your mind and just get past it right away. Just go back to work. And that will either make you harden and inhuman or else it will erupt later and devastate you. And if you want to go in that direction, I have a friend who would like to talk to you first. The other mistake is to grieve without hope. The Bible indicates that the love and hope of God and the love of hope that come from one another have to be rubbed into our grief the way you rub salt into meat to keep it from spoiling. Your grief will make you bleaker and weaker, or it'll make you wiser and tender, depending on what you rub into it. And that's why we're here today. We're here to rub hope and love into our tears and sorrow. You know, I tell my students, uh, who are all aspiring uh, preachers, um, your job is to help people grieve. You're trying to enable grief. Don't take it away from them. Come alongside them, show up and shut up and just be there. I mean, if you have to do something, pray. Shine their shoes, that always helps. The point is, suffering people need to be able to weep and pour out their hearts and not be immediately shut down by being told what to do or what to think or what to believe. And nor should we do that to ourselves if we're the ones grieving. A man who lost three sons at various times in his life, wrote about grief in a book called The View from a Hearse. And he writes, I was sitting, torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. I was unmoved, except to wish he'd go away. He finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour or more, listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, and left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. In his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, which I think is his best book, Tim Keller tells the story of how this happened in his own family. He writes, my younger brother, Billy, was a gay man who had AIDS. My parents, this is his true story, my parents were Christians who held to the church's historic teaching that homosexuality is a sin. And when Billy took a turn for the worst and was moved into hospice, my parents, then in their 70s, moved a thousand miles, slept at nights on a pull-out couch in a relative's den, and for seven months stayed beside Billy and cared for him 14 hours a day. They did not confront him or even bring up their differences. They fed him sips of juice and spoonfuls of yogurt. They served his most basic needs. Eventually, he himself brought up the issues that divided the family for years. He was able to do so because my parents had created a climate of care in which such a frank discussion felt safe to have. We talked them through with truth and tears, and many relational and spiritual issues were resolved. 
Most of you have known me for a while. Some of you I've known just recently, and there's a couple of you I haven't actually met yet. But you know me for a lot of different things. After all, I've been your pastor for a long time. And you've heard me talk about a lot of different things. And even though I've done a few funerals and given a few eulogies, I haven't had to do that here that often. And yet the people of Wayland, Massachusetts, know me for that one thing, the gift of eulogies. Let me explain. As some of you know, most of Joanne's family has passed away. And I've given the eulogy at most of their funerals. And I want to share some of the highlights with you. Because you haven't heard them. And in the excerpts from these eulogies, when I mention you, it's referring to the people in the congregation that day, not this day. And I hope it will help when it comes your time to grieve. So here they are. Let me start last year, 2017, with Jean Marshall, Joanne's sister. See, there wasn't a lot about Jean Ellen Marshall that you would describe as ordinary. As you have heard, she wasn't supposed to live this long, but she did out of the ordinary. She wasn't supposed to be an athlete, but she was out of the ordinary. She wasn't supposed to go to school, but she not only went, she graduated out of the ordinary. She wasn't supposed to hold down a job, but she did out of the ordinary. She wasn't supposed to be joyful, but she was out of the ordinary. She wasn't supposed to be the one who made other people smile, but she did. What made Jean such an out-of-the-ordinary person? People might say it's because of Down syndrome, perhaps, but I'm not so persuaded. I think it had a lot more to do with her faith and her family than it did with her frailties. We just sang the hymn, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus.'" And I chose that hymn. I asked Dad, uh, uh, Dave to play it because it reminds me of Jean. We sang right at the beginning, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord." Jean had another line from that hymn, what we would call a simple faith. And that's a compliment. We live in a day and age where people have to figure everything out before they commit. We do that with relationships. It never works. We do that with school and jobs and even fun activities. And it doesn't work with those things either. We even do it with religion, perhaps especially we do it with religion as if we can eliminate the need for faith. Jean had none of those issues. She simply believed. And there's something for all of us to learn from that. We tend to complicate the obvious. We want to dot the I's and cross the T's and make sure you're still using the Oxford comma. Jean didn't usually understand the complicated, but she got the obvious. And she saw no need to make it less understandable. That doesn't work for everything, but it works for a lot of things. And I would argue that faith is one of those things it works for. Jean was able to believe things she couldn't explain. Not many of us can do that. Sometimes we can't do it because we struggle to believe what we can't explain. Sometimes we can't do that because we refuse to accept that we can't explain it. Sometimes we refuse to admit that there are things in this world we won't be able to explain. We refuse to admit we don't know everything. We're not omniscient. Jean had none of those issues. And her faith was sweet. Another thing Jean didn't struggle with was being herself. She didn't worry about impressing others. Yes, she wanted to be liked. So do you. So do I. But she didn't invest a lot of emotional energy in trying to make herself look better than she was. She was content to be herself. You could accept that or not, but she wasn't worried about it. And there's something to be said for the gift of being yourself. How did she get there? Well, some of you know the story of Jean. Many of you know the story of Jean's family, but few of you know both. So if you'll indulge me for a moment, 
I'd like to tell you a short story of a remarkable family. I'm going to start with her father, Les. Sixteen years ago, I told the people of Wayland, Massachusetts, from the pulpit of Trinitarian Congregational Church in 2002 about Les Marshall, Joanne's father. Les knew about second chances. He gave them to everyone he knew. He gave second chances to his kids, his friends, his customers, and probably to a lot of you here. He was steadfast. He was steady. He was loyal. He was always there. He was there for his wife for 52 years. He was there for his kids. And they got a lot of his second chances. So did a lot of their friends. They brought them all home. They always got a warm welcome, a warm meal, and very often a warm bed. There were quite a number of friends who moved in. Some stayed a few days. Some stayed a few years. All of them got a second chance, and most of them needed it. And over the years, I got to meet quite a few of them, and they'd say, oh, I lived uh, back there in the, in the late 60s, or in the early 70s, or part of 77, or whatever. It was amazing. Even when I did this eulogy in 2002, people in the congregation came up to me and they were like, August 81, you know, I was there for the summer of 78, I didn't even know, but they all considered Les and Joe to be their second parents, and a lot of other parents didn't have to worry about their kids because they knew they were at the Marshalls, a lot of people came through the doors at 12 Three Ponds Road, I was one of them. They were always welcome, and usually welcome back time and time and time again. All of Marie's friends, all of John's friends, well, most of John's friends, all of Joanne's friends, all of Jean's friends, and they all became part of this huge extended family, and their lives are different today because of it. It was obvious that Les believed in second chances. He gave them out freely again and again and again. And we all need someone in our lives who's steady, loyal, and gives a second chance. We need someone like Les Marshall. So go find one. Better yet, go be one. God gives out second chances. He's been called the Lord of the second chance. And when you follow the Lord for 75 plus years, it begins to sink in. Les did what Jesus did. He gave out second chances. I think he'd be honored if you did the same. And then there was Gene's brother-in-law, Bill Winter. And about 10 years ago, I said from the pulpit of the historic Mary and Martha Chapel, you ever see the postcard of that white New England clapboard church? It's probably Mary and Martha Chapel in Sudbury. And I said that Bill loved living. He loved music. He loved the stories he found in our story. It's now 2008. And I want you to meet Bill Winter, Joanne's brother-in-law. And at that funeral, I told the people that one of the great theologians of the 20th century was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And in 1944, near the end of his life in a Nazi concentration camp, he wrote the following, I am discovering right up to this very moment that it is only in living completely in this world that we experience true life and faith. By this, I mean living unreservedly in life's duties, problems, successes, and failures. In so doing, we throw ourselves completely into the arms of God, taking seriously not only our problems, but those of God and the world. That, I think, is faith. And I think that's a definition of faith Bill Winder would have been comfortable with. Death can be such a robber of life, not just because... The end often comes abruptly and without warning, but even more so because our fear of dying sometimes keeps us from really living. We tend to cower through life trying to deny the inevitable by self-protecting or simply existing rather than really living. At the beginning of this eulogy, I quoted Jonathan Edwards who said, you can always tell what a person really believes by his or her actions. Love, life, and laughter, that was the faith and life of Bill Winter. Let no one say Bill Winter wasn't really living. He wouldn't want anyone to say that about you. And then there was her brother, John. Seven years ago, 
I said that John led an interesting life. I also said that John led a generous life, and he did those things because he was a friend to everyone he met. It's now 2011, and I want you to meet John Marshall, Joanne's brother. John was a friend. I don't think he ever met a stranger. I can't tell you how many people I have met that introduced themselves to me by saying, Hi, I'm Paul, friend of John's. That phrase, friend of John's, seemed to carry special significance. It was the necessary invitation to join this huge extended family that constantly filled the Marshall home. And so I would ask them, how do you know John? And they would mention some high school. He attended several. Or some college. He attended several. Or some place of work. He attended several. Or some port of call, he attended several. But they were friends, one and all, and John seemed to value each one, and they valued him. Now, truth be told, John had a secret weapon when it came to meeting people. In fact, he had four of them, and each of them had four legs. And their names were Lady, Buddy, Kona, and Flo. The Flo lives in our home now. And these dogs would lead the way. And they would find the nicest person in town who coincidentally was often the prettiest person in town. (laughs) Can't even read my words. Anyway, John would just follow along and reap the benefits. If If it's hard to remember John not on his boat, it's even harder to remember John without one of his dogs. John Eddie Marshall was an interesting guy with a generous heart and left a life filled with friends. And so as I prepared to do his eulogy, I tried to think of a biblical reference that would sum up John's life. And I hope I did him justice with this one. Appropriately, it comes to us from 1 John 4. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have for a man, whoever loves God must also love his brother. John must have loved God because he surely loved his brother, which means very likely that John loved you. And if you love God by loving your brother, if what the Apostle John said is true, and I believe that it is, that it's not only the best description of John I can find, it's the best way to honor his life. Don't forget that. John wouldn't want you to. It was his way of life. And finally, there was her mom, Joe Marshall. And four years ago, I said there's a lot of words one could use to describe Joe, but the word I came up with is caring. And we're now up to 2014, and I want you to meet Joe Marshall, Joanne's mother. Joe was an amazingly caring person. Not only did she care for people, she cared for a lot of people. Family was a big deal for Joe. She spent 52 years caring for her husband, Les with whom she's now reunited in the presence of the Lord. Her and Les were a team. They're steadfast, steady, loyal. They were always there for each other. They were partners in every sense of the word. And she's a person who cared for her children and went well beyond the simple and constant caring that most moms have for their kids. Jo was an advocate for her kids. She went to bat for them. She stormed the gates for them. You can pick any metaphor you want. She went to great lengths for her children. She went into the schools, the medical community, the disabled community, and yes, even in the church on behalf of Marie, John, Joanne, John, Jean, and John. I mentioned John. She became a tireless advocate for Jean and the righteous treatment of Down syndrome children and adults. And there are many people in that community who benefited from her efforts. Joe Marshall had a profound influence on many. There's a multitude of stories about people who, for one reason or another, fell into difficult situations, and Joe came alongside them, encouraged them, brought the word of God to bear on their lives, counseled them, and somewhere along the line, because she cared, she turned strangers into friends. And many of you are here today, too, and your lives are different because of her because she cared for you. And from what you say, you're forever grateful. The Apostle Paul's words in 1 Timothy 5 ring true of Joe Marshall. 
having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and devoted herself to every good work. Her caring for her family, friends, for all those that God brought into her life, demonstrate a reputation for good works, showing hospitality, caring for the afflicted and her devotion to every good work. We all need someone in our lives who's willing to show us hospitality, who cares for the afflicted, who's devoted to every good work, especially if you're the one who needs a warm welcome or a warm meal or a warm bed, especially if you're the one who's afflicted or hurt or broken, especially if you're the one who needs some good work in your life. We all need someone like Joe Marshall, I think she would be honored if you became a caring person in someone else's life. And that brings us back to Jean and back to her sisters. Brings us back to last August. And her sisters, Marie and Joanne, picked up the mantle of Les and Bill and John and Joe, and they loved Jean and they cared for her and befriended her friends and handed out second, third, and fourth chances. To more than a few people, including some of you, because that's the kind of family they came from. It's the kind of family Jean came from. Everyone who got to know her knew she came from somewhere special. You'll never understand Jean's story apart from the groundswell of support that flowed from this family. And in the hardest of days, and there were several, This is a family lived knowing that things would work out. They didn't always know when and they didn't always know how, but they always knew it would. One of the passages we went through a few months ago was 1 Corinthians 15, and that passage is about hope. It's about trying to understand what hope is and what hope we have when our dreams and loves, our friends and family have died and been buried. And if you've lived for any length of time, you've had to bury someone you love. You felt the sting of regret, the sorrow of unfinished business, the paralyzing confusion, and the emptiness of loss. You've probably found your mind flooded with questions about life beyond the grave. Apparently, the early church asked questions too. The Thessalonian church had buried her share of loved ones. The Apostle Paul wanted those who remained to be at peace regarding the ones who passed away. Many of you have buried loved ones as well, and Just as God spoke to them, God speaks to you. If you'll celebrate a marriage anniversary alone this year, he speaks to you. If your child made it to heaven before making it to kindergarten, he speaks to you. If you lost a loved one to violence, if you learned more about disease than you ever wanted to know, if your dreams were buried as they lowered the casket, God speaks to you. He speaks to all of us who have stood or will stand in the soft dirt next to an open grave. And he gives us this confident word, 1 Thessalonians 4, but we do not want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. As you well know, life is messy. I wish it weren't, but it is. But somewhere along the way, we'll run the full gamut of human experience. We'll face depression and grief. We'll be overwhelmed. We'll feel guilt and shame, and we'll want to give up. We'll want to somehow cocoon ourselves away from all the pain. What then? Well, we're still part of a company of faith. We still have that same sure hope. We can walk alongside one another and remind one another that the pain of this life has an end. There's a day coming when Christ will come again to be crowned King of kings and Lord of lords, when he will wipe away every tear, when justice will be administered fairly and everything will be set right, when God's new heaven and earth will come and this place will become what God always intended it to be. In the midst of grief and sorrow, we can stand with each other and say, yes, Jesus, the one who died and rose again, the one who is coming again, is our hope. This is where we place our faith. People living in hope are liberated. People who have no hope are enslaved, and people who question hope are burdened. But God calls us to live in the sure and certain hope of Christ's return and to encourage each other to that day. Jean Ellen Marshall and the Marshall family embrace 
embodied that kind of hope because they know whom they have believed in and were persuaded that he is able to guard until that day what has been committed unto them. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul explains more. 1 Corinthians 15, 51, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. It seems that at this gathering of the saints, the dead will receive their imperishable bodies, and those who are caught up from the earth will be transformed or changed into their new bodies instantly. One of the most frequent questions I get asked uh, is this, will we recognize each other in heaven? Given that we receive glorified bodies in paradise, how are we going to know each other there? Will we? What kind of bodies will these bodies be? Will we be old or young? We'll be able to recognize our family and friends. There's been endless debate on these issues. But based on what we know in the Bible, it seems that these new bodies will be ageless. They won't be worn down by disease, decay, and infirmities, all of which are ultimately the effects of sin. In other words, they'll be different from what we know now or what we can even conceive of. Paul likens this difference to the difference between a seed that's planted in the ground and what actually results from planting that seed. Our new bodies will be different from our current bodies. Thank God. And I think so for these reasons. Jesus said in heaven, we'll take our places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Matthew 8. So apparently we'll recognize them. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples easily recognized Moses and Elijah in their heavenly bodies, Matthew 17. And Paul promised in heaven, we will know as we are known. 1 Corinthians 13, truth be told, we won't really know each other until we get to heaven. What does this teach us about someone like Gene Ellen Marshall? I mean, simply put, that the Gene we will know is very different from the Gene we have known. We will know her better than we ever have. We'll know her in a deeper way than we ever have. We'll have conversations with her that will reveal a depth of wisdom and insight that we've never before experienced. And the Bible says it will be glorious. If you've ever gone to a reunion, you know there's times you don't recognize people who at one time were close friends. You go, there's that guy, really, that man. Wow, he looks old. Of course, you don't think that other people are saying that about you. You know, you kind of, well, I'm insane. Um, but in the same way, we're concerned we'll get to heaven. We won't recognize family members, close friends, saints of old. I think we're going to know each other in a much deeper way. We'll know the person than simply knowing each other by the form they inhabit. In other words, I believe I will recognize you, not just your form. In 1 Corinthians, Paul reflects on the future with these words. He says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. These things are written to encourage us. Paul wants us to understand that if we know where we're going when we die, we should find courage for life here and now. If we understand that death is not the end of the story, but simply a turn in the road to our ultimate destination, death loses its sting. If we understand that Christ will one day return, we can spend less time trying not to die and more time actually living. That's what Paul's saying. That's what we're to believe, and that's how we're supposed to live. And if you need to find an example of that kind of life, then the life of Gene Ellen Marshall would be a good place to start. After all, it's probably not the ordinary way of doing things. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us once again by your Son. Almighty and most merciful God, you are the consolation of the sorrowful. You are the support of the weary. Look down in tender love and pity on us whose joy has been turned into mourning so that while we mourn and grieve, we may not have our hearts darkened, but rather we might learn wisdom and grow strong in hope that we might resign ourselves into your hands to be taught 
and comforted, remembering all your mercies and promises and love in Jesus Christ, who brings life out of death and can turn all grief into deep and eternal joy. In our midst today, we have people whose hearts are broken. Father, others can work on broken buildings and broken bodies, but only you can heal broken souls. Only you can heal heal the fears, the grief, the rage, the despondency. Some of us have come very close to death. Some of us have people dear to us who have died. Many of us are shattered. Bind us up. Father, as your people make us what we need to be. Father, we ask that you would get us out of ourselves. We ask that you humble us and purify us, make us servants, make us what we need to be in order to show show the glory and love of Jesus to the people around us. Make us wise enough to know how to work together and use our resources to meet needs. Make us generous. Teach us how to practice the communion of the saints in this place. Father, we ask that you would protect us by your power, nurture us with a sense of your presence, fill us with your peace so that we can see Jesus who enables us not only to grieve, but to grieve with great hope and the great day of his coming. And we ask all this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. For all these years in our house, if I had mentioned you without permission, I had to give you a dollar. Um, so I guess I owe Flo some extra biscuits. And, but for Joanne, it was dinner out, and I was just informed that that was worth an entire weekend away. So <laughs> I got to make some plans. I also want to say before the benediction, there is a reading list. Uh, it's attached to the study guide, and uh, it should be an insert in your bulletin, uh, recommended reading on this subject. I encourage you to keep that, take it home with you. Hear God's word again from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. God bless you. And we'll see you tomorrow at the picnic.